this is urgent. We need to do this now. We need to do this yesterday. You know, this is not a 20 year problem. This is certainly not a 50 or 100 year problem. The people who come from the nuclear waste industry think about nuclear waste disposal typically in 50 to 100 year timeframes. And that was really surprising to me. Hi, I'm Beldit Mankus. Welcome to The Purposeful Strategist. The podcast that shifts the conversation about purpose and strategy from what organizations should do to what business leaders are doing and what they've learned along the way. In this episode, I'm very pleased to welcome Liz Muller, CEO of Deep Isolation. Liz wants to unlock the potential of nuclear power to address global warming. I'm a skeptic about nuclear power because nobody's yet solved the waste problem. But maybe Liz has. By the end of our conversation, I won't say I'm convinced, but I'm certainly a lot more open-minded than I was at the start. Join me for an informative and inspiring discussion about what it takes to bring a breakthrough idea into the world. Well, Liz, welcome to The Purposeful Strategist. Um, maybe just to get us into the conversation about you and about deep isolation, you could share a bit about yourself and tell us a bit about the company, how it got founded, what it's trying to do. Sure. So um, I've been interested in global warming since probably the early 2000s. And I was living in France and I was frustrated that we weren't doing more. And also frustrated that many of the things we are doing about climate change and global warming aren't really going to move the needle. They're not enough. They're insufficient. So we have these big policies and we're spending a ton of money on it, but it's not really going to change the trajectory that we're on. And I was really interested in what could change that trajectory, what could really move the needle and help us actually address climate change. And when I was living in France, nuclear power was just taken for granted. There's no controversy around it. Everyone was saying, well, why isn't the rest of the world adopting nuclear power? It's the obvious thing to do if you care about climate change. And when I moved back to the U.S. around 2006, 2007 now, I was interested in digging into that. Why aren't the people in the U.S. more interested in using nuclear to address climate change? And as you know, the issue that kept coming up was this unsolved nuclear waste problem. And that led to an interest in why haven't we solved this nuclear waste problem? If you're looking again at the big things you can do to address climate change and the obstacle is solving the nuclear waste problem, well, then maybe that's something we should be able to tackle. So it almost sounds like the purpose came before the company. Oh, absolutely. Yes. So why did you decide to start a company rather than a thousand one other things you might have done about that? Um, I had been running a nonprofit. So when we founded Deep Isolation, my initial inclination was, well, let's write a paper on borehole disposal of nuclear waste. And you know, we can do this as part of our nonprofit and we can get it out there. And in the conversations, and also in my personal experience, having worked at the OECD, the worst thing you can do is write a paper that then gets put on a shelf somewhere and nothing ever happens. 
And I was living in the Bay Area where I was surrounded by entrepreneurs and there is this startup way of thinking, which is you don't write a report and you put it on a shelf. Instead, you create a business and you raise investment. And once you have investment, you can actually go out and do big things. Um, we weren't initially sure that nuclear waste disposal was investable. So it, it took a little bit of work and research to discover that, yes, there is a nuclear waste fund. There's money that's been put aside in most countries around the world, or at least it's on the books, that governments are going to have to spend money on nuclear waste disposal. And it's a big number. We're looking at about a billion dollars per commercial power plant. So if that's the numbers that we're looking at, then we have the opportunity to provide a return on investment to our investors. And now it really makes sense to do this as a startup company. If you can, in fairly simple terms, what's deep isolation aiming to do? What's the solution? The solution is deep geologic isolation. So that's not changing. That's always been the international consensus around what we need. What's different is how we get it there. So the standard approach, the approach that people have been talking about for the past 50 years for how to put nuclear waste deep underground is through a mine. So you mine out a big tunnel and you bring trucks down there and you make sure there's enough space for the waste and then you eventually fill it up and you seal it and you close it and you walk away. The difficulty with that is, first of all, it's very expensive. Second of all, because it's very expensive, you really can't have a lot of flexibility in location. It's also a function of depth. Because you have people underground and you need air, you need to have ventilation shafts, the engineering complexity is very high. And you need to be in a rock formation that at 300 to 500 meters in depth is basically impermeable. You want to make sure that nothing can get out. There's not that many locations where you can do this. And so now you have to pick a location somewhere in the country or somewhere in the world and then convince the people who live nearby that they should accept to host a nuclear waste disposal facility, which is not an easy thing to do. And then depending on the country you're in, you also have to transport the waste there, which can be very expensive and very difficult, again, sort of depending on the country. Technically, it's a great solution, but it hasn't been practical for most locations around the world. The Finns and the, the Swedes are sort of the farthest along in terms of making progress on this approach. But other places have more or less given up or have said from the beginning, we can't consider this approach. It's just too expensive for our relatively smaller inventory. What deep isolation is doing is we're, we're not having people underground. So today with modern technology, with modern drilling technology, you can drill holes that are 18 inches in diameter and one to three kilometers in depth. And that's big enough for nuclear waste. One of the great things about nuclear waste is how compact it is. So you've probably heard people say, if you live off nuclear power for your whole life, all of your waste would fit into one soda can. And that's absolutely true. It's because the waste is so compact. And it means that boreholes are really an ideal solution. You don't need a lot of space. 18 inches is plenty. And that allows you to go much deeper, which means that the safety factor is dramatically higher. So instead of being able to just pass the safety requirements, we're looking at being a thousand times safer than you need to be in order to meet those safety requirements, which means there's more flexibility of location. Um, and then you don't necessarily have to move the waste from where it is right now. You can dispose of it at or near the facility where it is today. 
just to make sure I've got a few things right, you talked about Norway and Sweden kind of furthest along. But if I've got it right, no place on the planet yet viable working long-term storage in operation. Is that correct? That's correct. There's no operating disposal facility today for spent nuclear fuel or high-level nuclear waste. There are facilities for low-level and intermediate-level waste that exist, but not for the really hot stuff, the spent nuclear fuel or high-level waste. And where are you in the journey? Is the technology ready to go or is it sort of, no, we've we've got an idea. So where are you in that journey? The good thing is the technology is very ready. So we're not inventing anything that's brand new. We're using off-the-shelf, readily available drilling technologies. And even the attachment mechanisms for emplacing the waste underground are standard tools that the drilling industry uses every day. So that takes out a lot of the risk, a lot of the research development requirements, because we're not really doing anything new. Even so, it's going to take a couple of years. So if a first customer said, yes, we're all in, we want to go, we want to do it this way, it's going to take a couple of years at a particular location to demonstrate that we can meet the safety requirements. Now, we are very confident about being able to meet those safety requirements because, as I mentioned earlier, we're about a thousand times safer than we need to be, and that's in the worst case scenario. But we still need to do that and document that extremely carefully. It's the Nuclear Regulatory Commission or equivalent international body that has the responsibility for this, and that will just take time. Given that, what's kind of your strategy and how did you go about developing the strategy you've got? So as a business, we only need one customer in order to be very successful as a company, in order to get our investors that return on investment. I think there's also a strong belief that once we get one, we're going to get two, we're going to get three, we're going to get a dozen, we're going to get a few dozen, right? There are hundreds of locations all around the world storing nuclear waste and temporary storage. And all of these, I think, are potential customers when you provide them with a longer term solution that is safer for 50, 100 years. So as a business, we are making money today. So we do have contracts today with a number of governments around the world for pre-disposal services. So this is where we look at a particular inventory of waste. We look at particular rock types and we say, okay, well, how would we dispose of this waste in this particular location? Um, We're doing a lot of that now and we are making money by doing that But obviously, the upside for our investors is going to be once we begin the work on real disposal. If I understand right, you sort of put it in the ground pretty much where it is. Yeah, at least for the first sites. So I think that um, part of the challenge for uh, the previous approach, mind repositories, it's too hard. There's just too much going on. There's the expense of building the mine. There's the difficulty of convincing a local community um, in the U.S. to deal with the state um, that this is a reasonable and right thing to do. And then you also have to deal with the transportation. And all of that together just makes it really, really hard. I think we need to break it down and start with something that's relatively simpler, relatively easier. I fully expect that the first locations where deep isolation is going to actually do waste disposal is going to be at or very near an existing site. So this is where there's a community that already has waste. 
And so they're going to have a choice. They can keep the waste where it is right now in temporary storage where it's safe for 20 years, maybe 40 years, maybe longer. Or they can choose to put it deep underground where it's safe for future generations in addition to being safe right now. And I don't expect everyone's going to choose that. Some locations are going to prefer to wait and see, and maybe somebody's going to be able to take the waste and move it away. But given that that's not happened in most locations around the world, I think there's also a sense that maybe that's never going to happen. So that if the choice becomes between waiting and hoping that something's going to change when nothing ever has And there's no concrete plan in most locations for that ever to change or no realistic plan for that ever to change or to make it safe today right near where it is right now require that transportation and that waiting. I expect that at least one community somewhere in the world is going to make the choice that they want to make it safer today. It only takes one. And then I think other people are going to start saying, oh, look at this. This really is safe. It removes the problem in the near term. It doesn't require waiting for 20 to 40 years or longer. I do think it's an attractive option. Now, eventually, we may end up disposing of waste from communities that don't want to dispose of it on site. But that is a much harder problem. And so that's not where we're going to be beginning our work. I think we're going to start out by disposing at the site where it is today. Is there more difficult technological problems with transport sort of out and transport in? So you've got to persuade people, here's this waste, it's in whatever it's in. Now we're going to put it on a lorry or a train or whatever. We're going to move it. To me, that always seems riskier than leaving it where it is, even if maybe it's not. Is that kind of the big obstacle? Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. You touched on it. It is very safe, but there's still this fear of it and people not wanting waste on the roads, on their trains, going through their backyards. That's a big part. And then the community acceptance on the other end is also a big part of it. So I've got this picture that you're in France, you're thinking about global warming, you're thinking about nuclear. The big issue is how do you get rid of the waste? It feels like there's a missing piece in there, but whether it's chance, luck, whatever, how did, how did it turn out that all that led to you doing what you're doing? Yeah, it's a great question. I was doing consulting for the last few years I was living in Europe, and we were increasingly getting asked about global warming and environmental concerns and energy usage. And during that time, my father, who's a professor of physics at UC Berkeley, had been teaching a class called Physics for Future Presidents um, at UC Berkeley, which is a class on the physics that you need to understand for real world problems. You know, he's very familiar with nuclear physics and energy and climate change. And so initially, when we started working together, we did this through the nonprofit Berkeley Earth. So this was after I moved back from France um, and ran that together um, until we started Deep Isolation. And, and Berkeley Earth is still continuing today. He and I are both still on the board. That's amazing. I guess my question is, from a strategy standpoint, what prevents somebody else? Once you finally got somebody to say yes, and now it's sort of the, the floodgates are open, What prevents somebody else from just coming in and going, thank you very much? Right. Great idea. We're going to implement it now. It's a good question. The drilling technologies are off the shelf, but how you use a borehole for nuclear waste disposal is an area where there hasn't been a lot of thought. The idea has actually been around since the 1980s, particularly around the use of a vertical borehole 
one of the new innovations that deep isolation has brought is if you have a lot of volume, it can be much more cost effective to use a horizontal hole as opposed to a vertical hole. You, you just get a lot more space at the level of depth that you want. That hadn't been thought about before. So we've got about 20 patents that have issued and another sort of 50 inventions that are pending in various different patent groups. So um, it's everything from the design of the borehole, which is not the same for nuclear waste disposal as you would use for oil and gas. The direction that you drill is going to be slightly different. You want to reduce the likelihood of fractures as opposed to increasing the likelihood of fractures. So if you're in an area where there might be some seismicity, you want to go with the grain of the any seismic um, activity that might happen. The shape of the borehole itself, so not only are we using a slightly larger hole or a significantly larger hole, the standard is sort of 5 to 8 inches, and our lateral is 18 inches in, in diameter, so that's bigger. Um, so there's the design of the hole, the shape of the hole. Um, we have a safety runway, so in the case that something were ever to be dropped from the top. It's not going to go crashing to the bottom. Instead, it's going to come down to a gentle slide, just as a small child going down an actual slide would come to a stop at, at, at the bottom. Um, so we've got lots of patents on, on the design of the hole, the emplacement mechanism. We have a specially designed canister um, that we've been working on with the Department of Energy in the U.S. and also with the U.K. government. And then the handling is, again, a mix of standard operating practice. So we are working with NAC International who does um, above ground handling. And most of what we're doing there is the same as what you would do if you're gonna open up a dry cask and put it into a new dry cask because maybe there's been um, degradation of, of, of the concrete. So a lot of that is the same, that what's different is the canister. So we do have a much smaller canister than you would use for above ground storage. And uh, we have IP on that as well. Mm -hmm. I suspect you still have to deal with this sort of, oh, it's nuclear and it's bad. And what happens if it gets out? And so how do you address all that? That's true. I mean, there's this combination of what everything the industry has said, which is also true, which is that it's very safe where it is right now. And if it did get out, which is unlikely, but if it did, that would be very bad. And so you want to be careful um, and you want to make sure that, that everything does meet the safety requirements. And luckily, I don't have to be the one to, to make sure that we meet the safety requirements. There are government bodies that, that will regulate us and make sure. So nobody has to trust me when I say it's safe enough. I mean, it is safe enough, but there are institutions that have been working on this and perfecting those regulatory requirements for a long time. And then again, comes back to what is it you're comparing it to? So if you're comparing nuclear waste disposal to nothing, to a, a place where there is no nuclear waste disposal, even there you can argue that nuclear waste disposal is safe enough that people should be able to choose this, even when the comparison is no nuclear waste anywhere nearby. Now, again, when the comparison is you already have nuclear waste there, then I think it tips the balance because it's very clear that it's safer for the longer term and even potentially for the short term if it's deep underground. So now you're choosing the safer solution as opposed to just a solution that provides other benefits, financial or et cetera. It sounds like you're in a, a somewhat unusual place, or at least you're recognizing that you're in this place where a lot of businesses 
either feel they're not or don't recognize it, that the regulations enabling your business, if there weren't a government regulator who said, no, 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 when we say it's safe, it's safe, you wouldn't get anywhere. Yeah, no, it's absolutely true. All of our calculations are available on you know, peer-reviewed journals, so those are all available to the public. And that's great because it does allow anyone who you know, wants to take a close look at the safety calculations, they can. And um, we haven't really had anyone sort of come back and said, oh, you made a mistake here. So that's reassuring. But as you said, it's not us. It's the final decision maker and it is the regulator that needs to certify that this is going to be safe enough. In developing your strategy, this may be overly simplistic, we'll kind of pay our way by doing consulting investigations, pre-disposal work, and that's good. So at least we're not going to run out of cash right away. And at some point, somebody's going to say yes for the drilling. How did you get to that? Was it like, well, it was just so obvious? Or, you know, did you come up with that? Was it you and your father working together? How long did that take? Who got involved? Yeah, it's a good question. I think we recognized early on that it was going to be really hard for any government to sign a billion dollar contract with a small startup company that didn't have a long history of doing work in the space. It was clear that this wasn't going to be a zero to now we're doing nuclear waste disposal. There was going to be a path that needed to happen along the way. And two of the key people that were involved in this were actually based in the UK, Bill Edwards and Chris Parker, two people who I've worked with for a really long time and have been part of deep isolation from pretty much the very beginning. And they put together a strategy of incremental sales. So you don't start by selling nuclear waste disposal. You start by selling what they call a foundation study. So this is where you look at a waste inventory, you look at the rock, you do a cost-benefit analysis, maybe you do some comparisons to either the status quo of temporary storage or maybe to a mined repository if that's an approach that's available. We've also had some customers who look at what they call a mind plus approach. So this is they already are working on a mind repository and they don't want to get rid of that mind repository, but they recognize that the mind repository can be cheaper if you take some of the really nasty stuff out of it and you put it in boreholes right next to it. So this is sort of the initial pieces of work that we do to start to get to know our customers, to understand their particular challenges that they're facing, their particular inventory, their geology. All of those things happen first. Then we move into what we call an operational readiness phase, but it's really a demonstration and beginning the work of the licensing. So this is where now you're doing more, you're drilling a hole, looking at the regulations, you're taking rock samples, you're showing that nothing that goes under this depth is ever going to get out. And those contracts were just moving into that phase right now. So that's where we are as a business. And I expect that we're going to have a couple of those in the next year or two. But then, of course, once you have that, you now have a whole, a licensed or mostly licensed facility that has shown it can meet the safety requirements. And so moving from there to actual disposal should be much more straightforward. As you've been going on this journey, what surprised you the most? Could be a positive surprise, could be a negative surprise, but what's been sort of most unexpected? I think what's been most unexpected to me is the difficulty of getting anyone to move in this space. 
my background is not in the nuclear sector. And so I came at this from a global warming perspective. This is urgent. We need to do this now. We need to do this yesterday. You know, this is not a 20 year problem. This is certainly not a 50 or 100 year problem. The people who come from the nuclear waste industry think about nuclear waste disposal typically in 50 to 100 year timeframes. And that was really surprising to me. I guess I learned it early on, but then I didn't really believe it because it just seems like, why would we take 50 to 100 years to solve this when we can do it in five? I mean, it just doesn't make any sense to me. So that's probably the biggest surprise. I'll, I'll add one more thing, which I think that's also starting to change. We are getting more people in government now who recognize the importance of climate change and who want to move things forward quickly. We also have a lot of people, members of the public, who say that they're maybe open to a future of nuclear power, but they want to see the waste problem solved. Um, so I think that's starting to change, but that's certainly been my biggest surprise as an outsider coming in and the area that I find most frustrating to deal with. Yeah, well, I'm definitely in that category of open, but I need to hear what's going to happen to the waste. Yeah, absolutely. Which is why part of the reason I'm very interested in what you're doing. Have you seen signs of a movement beginning from the climate change world to put pressure on this issue? Yeah, for sure. Particularly in the EU that now has a regulation as nuclear investments in nuclear can only be considered green if there is a waste disposal solution. So that's new. That's exciting. Now, the time frame for that is 2050. So, you know, again, I sort of would rather that we're a little bit closer, but at least it's taking a step in the right direction. We're also seeing the same thing from a number of countries who are looking at bringing in new nuclear. And there's also energy security, too, which is a big part of this. And nuclear can help with both. But if they're going to do that, they want to figure out the waste disposal before we build the nuclear plant. It's a responsible way of thinking about it. And we're seeing more and more of that today. One of the things I think I see signs of in lots of places is people beginning to think through the full cycle. AI is maybe another example of it. People going, hang on, so we're going to have this stuff. Like everything else we do, it's going to create some problems. So can we get in front of the problems? I think that's a really positive sign across a lot of different things. Um, if you had to go at it again to get to the point where you are now, what might you change? That's a good question. It's been a learning journey for me. So, you know, I'm relatively new to the nuclear sector. I'm relatively new as a startup CEO, but I'm not sure there's really anything I could point to as doing differently. We did a demonstration in 2019 and we did another one early this year. And it's interesting because you wouldn't think that they would have as much of an impact as they have. This is sort of readily available technology. So we're not really demonstrating anything that hasn't been done before. But there is that public acceptance piece of it. Particularly in the U.S., there'd also been a history of protests, not only for nuclear waste disposal, but even for demonstrating options for nuclear waste disposal. And so the fact that we were able to do a demonstration with the support of the local community, I think went a long way um, in terms of getting the partnerships that we've needed in order to grow faster and also building acceptance and trust with governments. Mm -hmm. So if you had to give advice to a different business leader who, like you, is trying to do something that's 
not actually really been done. I mean, the technology maybe has been used, but you're trying to almost persuade the world of a different solution. What advice might you give to them in terms of wrestling with their own organization's purpose and figuring out a strategy? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the key learning that I've had is that you have to constantly keep learning. You can never sort of sit still and say, okay, I know how to handle this and I have all the skills I need for the next five years. You're never going to have all the skills you need. You're going to need to constantly be learning. I've done that through a combination of advisors um, and people that I call regularly and say, hey, I just had this new thing happen or a new crazy idea and I just want to bounce it off of someone. And I do that very regularly. And it's a way of you know, growing your expertise exponentially. So it's not just your expertise, it's your network's expertise. And I also read a lot. I get most of my book on audiobook these days and I listen to them as I drive or as I walk or, or you know, even as I'm cleaning house. And there's so many books out there that can be tremendously helpful. Um, you know, I just read um, David and Goliath, which is about you know how a small company can go up against the big ones. There's just so much out there that you can learn as long as you sort of have that growth mindset and just recognize that you're not going to have everything you need to know for the next couple of years. You're going to have to keep increasing all the time. Actually, just picking up on that David and Goliath theme, What's the reaction been from sort of big nuclear waste disposal? Have they been encouraging, obstructive, kind of don't really even care? What's their stance been? Yeah, there's no real private companies that do nuclear waste disposal other than a few in Scandinavia, right? So mostly this is governments. The response from industry generally has been, I would say for the first few years, they just didn't take us seriously. They sort of said, yeah, startup company, they're going to go out of business in a couple of years and then we're going to move on with things. But that changed. I think that changed um, maybe three or four years ago and we're now taken seriously. I remember an early frustration I had when people would be writing articles about nuclear waste disposal and they just wouldn't mention boreholes. They wouldn't mention isolation. And you know, why not? Um, and that's not true anymore. Now, pretty much any article that's out there that talks about nuclear waste disposal talks about boreholes or talks directly about deep isolation. That's a very significant change. I think the industry has been a little bit skeptical at the beginning, but also very welcoming. I think they recognize that this unsolved nuclear waste problem is a challenge, particularly welcoming by the uh, advanced reactor community that see this really as they're going to have to figure out their waste solution. So overall, it's been a little skeptical, but pretty warm and pretty happy that we're here. What haven't I asked you about that you wish I had? What haven't we touched on that we be good for us to talk about? We can talk about investment. Yeah. You've raised some money. Why'd you do it? How'd you do it? What opportunities and constraints does that bring with it? Early on, we primarily focused on individuals who were able to make a fairly significant investment. We recognize that with the regulatory requirements and particularly with the lack of other people in this space, it can be hard for institutions to invest in a company like Deep Isolation. That's changed as well. So the early investors were primarily individuals, family offices, 
people who not only could see that there was a very significant upside um, for deep isolation success, but also cared about where they put their money and they wanted to do something that was good for the world. So that was early on. Maybe about a year or two ago, we started getting more interest, both from strategics. So um, it was NAC International that led our A round back in 2020. They recognized that you know the future of nuclear is going to need a nuclear waste disposal solution, and we're it. So it's a good investment. It's a sound investment for the future of the nuclear industry. Um, we're now also more of a match for VCs than we were in the early days. As you noted earlier, we do have revenue, we're making money, we're able to sustain our current teams. That mitigates the downside very significantly. Investment can move us from being the slow track we're on now. If we were to do nothing else, I believe we would succeed. Now, it might take 10 years, right? Nuclear is a slow moving industry, but I think if we don't receive any more investment, if we just continue where we are now, we will get there eventually. But our investors, most of them, want a quicker return on investment. As I've noted, I come at this from a climate change angle, so I want this done yesterday already. And so we would like to move forward faster. And I think that with investment, we can do that. We can bring forward some of the risks. We can lean into some of our most likely first customers and accelerate the path to success. So if if somebody heard this story, if somebody heard this podcast and they thought, this is it, this has got to be the way forward, is there anything they can do to sort of support what you're doing to make it go even incrementally faster? Yeah, there's a lot of things that people can do. I think that just having the conversation and talking to people about the importance of solving for nuclear waste disposal can get back to politicians and it can get back to governments. My single biggest frustration right now is the lack of government needing to do anything about this. That changes when the mindset of the public changes. And if there was a public demand, we want to be responsible with our nuclear waste disposal now, not 50 years from now, not 100 years from now. There are things we can do, right? It's not just deep isolation. There's other things that can move forward faster, too, but not if we don't have that demand for it. If people do want to invest, there are investment mechanisms for small investors as well as larger investors. I think even for smaller investors, they do need to be um, sort of certified um, investors. We work with a group called Nucleation Capital that allows smaller investors to get exposure to investments in nuclear, and um, they're also a shareholder in deep isolation. What questions, if any, do you have for me? How do you think about nuclear and nuclear waste disposal, given our conversation? And is there anything that's changing your mind? It's a great question. As you probably know, I've been, I won't say anti-nuke, but that's probably pretty close. Exactly over this issue of waste. I mean, I've been hearing about how we're going to sort it out eventually most of my life. And I haven't seen anything happen, you know, so you kind of... Pretty good predictor of what's going to happen next is what's been happening. And when we were introduced, I was really intrigued by this idea that maybe there's something that could happen a lot quicker. I won't say I'm sold, but I'm definitely a lot more open-minded than I was. Good to hear it. Well, Liz, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for sharing you know, your journey so far. I wish you well with it. And perhaps at some point, we might even move back around again and hear what the next few years have held. 
That would be amazing. So thank you for this. Really happy to talk to you. Uh, Thanks for joining us. Take care. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Purposeful Strategist. Please email any questions or suggestions to belden at mancus.com. In addition to being available on our website, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you enjoyed this episode, we release a new episode weekly. Don't forget to subscribe. Thanks again, and join us soon for the next episode of The Purposeful Strategist.